This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today is the second part in our three-part series on the TV show, You. So I'm just going to kick it off with moving into season two. Uh, If you haven't listened to the first episode where I talk about season one, uh, you can go back and catch up with that. That that came out last week. Um, Again, with this episode, uh, a warning for certain sensitive content, um, such as sexual assault, um, inappropriate sexual behavior with underage children, uh, suicide, violence, all the horrible stuff. Um, So again, if stuff about this show is sensitive for you, particularly as it relates to like interpersonal violence um, or <clears throat> like exploitation of young children, uh, I just, you know, encourage you to take care of yourself or maybe skip this episode um, and also massive spoilers for the series. So all of that up top to say know what you're getting into with this episode. Um, so, you know, real quick, last week we talked about series one or season one of the show You which followed Joe, uh, our main character, who we see has uh, a bit of a pattern of becoming very obsessive with women that he's attracted to, uh, which ultimately led to him murdering the woman that he was obsessed with, Guinevere Beck. And the series ended on a cliffhanger where we see that Candace, Joe's ex-girlfriend, who we assumed that he had killed, uh, actually was not dead and has come back uh, to seek her revenge. So season two picks right up from there. I'm going to introduce our cast of most important characters before we uh, jump into the synopsis. So again, we have Joe Goldberg starring <laughs> our, our main character. Um, this time he, though, is using the name Will Bettelheim as he is attempting to avoid uh, Candace's <laughs> attention as she is hell-bent on, on hunting him down. Um, unfortunately, Will Bettelheim is a real person in the show, uh, and we see that Joe actually keeps him kind of caged up as he uses Will's identity to uh, move around the city. Candace, again, plays a much larger role. She is definitely still alive, and, and in season one, she really was mentioned only in flashbacks or in the background, but she is a, a much more central character in this uh season. <clears throat> Next we have Love Quinn, who is Joe's new love interest. Um, she is a chef at a small organic grocery store in Los Angeles. She's also a twin, so her twin brother, Forty, um, who presents with some addiction and substance use issues and seems to be involved in, in some shady stuff and, and really kind of is a stereotypical like rich kid who, who can't quite seem to launch a uh, from his family home. So that's, uh, and love and 40, it's like a tennis joke. It's like, oh, what, what could you name your very rich children? 40 love. Um, Candace does get involved in these relationships as Candace begins dating 40 under an assumed name. Uh, she goes by Amy when she's trying to get closer to Joe and she does eventually like, um, talk to Love and try to confront her about, about what, what Joe was going on, and she is there to kind of prevent Joe from, from hurting Love. Um, then we have Ellie and Delilah. So these are sisters who live in the ap- apartment complex that Joe 
moves to. Delilah is the oldest, um, and she is his landlord and a reporter. And Ellie, who's 15 years old, um, strikes up a kind of a friendship with Joe. Uh, and then we have Henderson, who's a comedian in Los Angeles, who has a reputation for uh, quote-unquote shady behavior with underage girls, which is inappropriate sexual contact with underage girls, if, if we're just going to be clear about it. So those are our main characters. There are, of course, other characters. Um, but like I did with the first se season, uh, I won't go over minute detail <laughs> um, so that if you do go back and watch it yourself, there there's still some, some cool things um, to discover. So with this cast of characters, let's get into the series. Um, so the series kicks off almost immediately after season one. Uh, where Joe is confronted by Candace and he flees to Los Angeles. So remember, season one took place in New York. He's fleeing across the country to Los Angeles. He takes on his new identity of Will Bettelheim and he gets a job running the book section of this hippie, hipster, hippie grocery store called Anaverin, which is Nirvana backwards. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a silly little name. Um, while working at the bookstore... Uh, portion he meets love who is the chef so she runs the kitchen section of the store um, and they begin a flirtation however as the episode plays out we see that Joe actually did choose to work at this place because he was stalking love and is right back to his old pattern so he you know when he flees to LA his intentions are that he's not gonna do what he does because he's trying to stay low and, and stay out of Candace's way, but he immediately falls back into doing it. The only reason he even pursued this job was because he was already enamored with love. Um, I will say as somebody who lives in LA, there's a lot of LA hate <laughs> in this series and a lot of the season is based on a lot of LA stereotypes, which some of them are, are kind of silly and, you know, I think you could laugh at, but if you feel like very personally about Los Angeles, this season can be a little uh, difficult <laughs> because so much of it is based on these kind of very silly um, LA stereotypes of people who, the, the kind type of people who live here. And the first episode spends a lot of time um, kind of exploring those. And Joe is presented, again, remember going back to season one or episode one, unreliable narrator, right? So he's we're seeing the world as interpreted through Joe and he really has difficulty with the people in Los Angeles and kind of sees himself as above the fray and better than um, a lot of the people he sees on the street, like taking selfies or drinking green smoothies. Like he, he really thinks that he's above a, a lot of these like LA stereotypes. Um, I also think it's interesting that in the first episode of season two, we get a very similar experience to what we did in the first season, where it really seems like everything is fine, um, even though we know, you know, we're as the as the audience, we're a little more informed now because we know what Joe does and that he is not a good person and that when he is fixated on a woman, it, it can be very dangerous. Um, but it is set up as like he's doing it, he's managed to escape from Candace and whether you're you think that's a good thing or not I, I don't <laughs> no judgment but he you know he's escaped he's in LA it seems like he's on a different path and he's like determined to not do what he did before but that, again just like in the first episode of season one it's shattered partway through the episode and we see that he actually had seen love through the window of this store and engineered this meeting 
um, so that he could work and at, at the grocery store and become closer to her. And I think this same setup of having Joe um, seem like he's on a different path and then it kind of crashing and burning and we see him back to his old ways, it does continue throughout the rest of the, the other series or the other seasons. Um, and I think it really serves to show us, the audience, that this type of behavior or this type of um, like compulsive behavior or obsessive behavior, uh, you can't really just like will your way out of it, right? Like you can't just think that you're going to force yourself and, and be okay without asking for help. Um, and, you know, because I'm coming from this like mental health perspective and, and from the helping profession, I think it is important to highlight that if you're struggling with something like this, whether it's obsessive thoughts about somebody or compulsive behavior that you really haven't been able to get a handle on by yourself, it is so important to ask for help. Um, and it doesn't make you a weak person. It doesn't make you a bad person if you experience these thoughts or these types of behaviors um, or, you know, even just like negative patterns in your relationship. Um, or relationships, it, it does not make you a bad person, but it is, you know, Joe is fake, right? So like whatever Joe does is not, uh, you know, if I'm making value judgments about what Joe does, it's not any value judgment I would make about a real person because he's a fake character who, you know, is kind of set up as a, as a straw man. Um, but if, if you are, or somebody in your life is struggling with these kinds of things, like it does not make you weak to ask for help. And I hope that as we kind of discuss the show and as you, you know, listen along or even watch the show yourself, you can see that, um, it is in fact a very, it's a source of strength to ask for help and to not just believe that you can kind of force your way into changing. Um, and that we often, we do better when we have help and support from other people um, and trying to do it by ourselves can, can have some dire consequences. So that's my, that's my soapbox <laughs> up at the beginning of the episode. Um, but all that to say, I do think that I, I like the setup of episode one of season two because it really does mirror season one, episode one. And I think it does serve to show us of like, oh, Joe, Joe is not so easily changed, right? These are these are really lifelong patterns that are not going to change just because uh, he changes his environment or, or his situation. Um, so we roll right along into the second episode where we see Will Bettelheim, who has been trapped. Um, like I said before, in the first episode, the cage that we saw in the bookstore, the like glass box uh, will show up in every series, every season. And so Joe has built himself a replica of this glass box cage in a storage facility in Los Angeles, and he is keeping Will in this box. The reason he keeps Will in the box is because Joe is trying to not just murder people <laughs> to get what he wants, but he's trying to put them in the box for a little bit and see if he can manage the situation without having to kill someone. So Will is in the box because Joe has taken his identity, and uh, as Joe is walking around the world as Will Bettelheim, he realizes that Will owes a lot of money to some very shady guys, one of whom is now stalking Joe and uh, demanding the money back. We also find out that Will has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and because he's locked in the cage, is not able to get his medication, which results in him slipping into uh, a sort of like a paranoid and delusional state. In this episode, Joe has to kill the shady guy who's harassing him for money, um, and he ends up disposing of the body in Love's kitchen, which will unfortunately come back later in the show. Um, Joe, all, while this is happening, he gets closer to Love, and they, they are, you know, 
their flirtation is growing, but they agree to not date each other and to just be friends for a while. Um, and at the same time, Joe is growing closer to Delilah, his landlord. And this is the first time where he learns about Henderson, the comedian, the comedian, and learns that Delilah was actually one of Henderson's victims when she was under the age of consent, so under age 18. Uh, so episode two really <laughs> kicks off. Um, I'm going to talk more about Will and sort of his portrayal of mental health with the, the diagnosis. Um, I'll talk about that later on, but that is just something that is kind of thrown out there in the in the show and um, is used as a plot device, but not necessarily, I don't know if it's necessarily used in the right way, but I'll, I'll talk about that more lately, later. Um, and this episode also kicks off this subplot of the Henderson storyline um, as Henderson and Ellie will um, actually have some encounters and Joe becomes very protective of Ellie when he realizes that, when he knows the truth about Henderson and realizes that they're, that Henderson is trying to get closer to Ellie. And so this also starts off this this um, similar subplot to like we had in series season one where Joe was very protective of Paco, his next door neighbor. Um, Joe is, is doing almost the same thing with Ellie and it's this it's portrayed in this way of like Joe is doing something very good, very redeeming. He's protecting a child. He's you know making sure that um, essentially a predator is not able to continue to prey on children in the in the town. Um, but it's it's again just like we talked about with Joe and Paco. It's Joe latching onto Ellie onto this child because he sees himself in her and is protecting Ellie out of like this obsession to kind of right the wrongs of Joe's childhood. Um, I don't think there is ever any hint that Joe was sexually abused as a child, but any any child that is in danger from an abusive adult, Joe is able to kind of like put himself onto. Interestingly enough, also, if you didn't know this, the actor who played Henderson in a bit of does life imitate art or art imitates life was credibly accused of grooming young women and young girls, um, much like his character does in the show. So I will leave that for you to look up on your own if you're interested in that. But I just wanted to, you know, just you know, acknowledge it um, because you know, although the the plot line with Henderson can seem a little out there or maybe a little bizarre, um, as we'll talk later, there's some kind of intense stuff that goes along with that. You know, I do want to acknowledge that this is a phenomenon that we see occurring where men with men and women with um, power, fame, recognition, you know, any type of authority can use that position to groom and be sexually inappropriate or have um, illegal sexual contact with children. And so it, I think it's just something to to note and that, um, you know, at the end of the day, Ellie is a child. She's still 15. Um, and although we see that she really has had to grow up very quickly because of her life situ- situation, um, she's a child and, and deserves to still have the rest of her childhood. Um, but again, another <laughs> aside that you can look into more uh, if, if you're interested in that. Um, so like I was saying, Joe kind of latches onto these children because it, it kind of reminds him of his own childhood and it gives him a chance to redeem his own experiences and we find out more in this season through a series of flashbacks that Joe as a child killed his father who was physically abusive to Joe and his mother Um, and this is kind of the first time this is the first time that Joe kills someone and that there were no consequences so his mom kind of covers up 
uh, what Joe has done for him. And this is also through the flashbacks, we see what Joe's pattern is. It's that he protects vulnerable women from angry men. Um, and we see that his mother was consistently having affairs and being unfaithful to Joe's father. So she becomes a bad woman, right? And like I've mentioned before in the first episode, and, and as will come up again, Joe has this like line where a woman crosses over from being all good to all bad. And, um, with his mother, she, she crossed over that line because Joe killed his father to protect her. And then instead of, you know, like, I don't know what he expected as a child, but her response was to be mad at him and then to leave him behind to, to, to go along with another man. And so my assessment is that Joe is seeking the perfect woman who is truly worthy of his protection because his mother ended up not being worthy of his protection. She like was a bad woman. And so he's constantly looking for these perfect women who don't make the mistakes that his mother did, and then they will be truly worthy of his protection. Um, which is why he ends up, you would think that his pattern would be to kill more men, <laughs> like to <laughs> murder men in his life, but he is, uh, I, I think that the pattern is that he kills women because they continue to disappoint him and not live up to this level of what he sees as like deserving of his protection. Um, but we can we can explore this a little bit more after we, we set up the rest of the premise. Um, okay, so rolling right along into the third episode, Joe and Love are being hot and cold with each other, and as they're kind of going back and forth, um, Joe starts to get closer to her brother, Forty, kind of as like a, he's like kind of making peace with Love by saying like he'll, you know, he can be close to her brother, who's, who's very important to her. Uh, Joe's, Joe also gets confirmation in this episode that Ellie is hanging out with Henderson, and Joe becomes obsessed with protecting her, and he even installs like uh, a tracking software on her phone so he knows where she is and knows if she's going over to Henderson's house or not. Um, Joe also infiltrates Henderson's house by going to a party because he wants to see if he can find more evidence that Henderson is doing the things that he's been accused of. And Forty is also in attendance at this party and has a bit of a meltdown because we learn that Forty struggles with substance use, maybe using more substances than he intends to or wants to, um, and also is, is kind of isolated. He, he's a bit of a social pariah, doesn't really fit in well. And so he gets into a situation at the party where he, he overreacts and, and ends up having to be taken home, uh, by Joe. Joe takes 40 home and is like kind of taking care of him and love arrives at his, at Joe's apartment to see that he's taking care of 40 and she, uh, you know, warms her little heart and she has sex with Joe. So that's kind of like their this has really kicked off their relationship because she has seen that he will take care of Forty, who is like the most important person in her life. And I think this uh, episode, the way that we see how Forty um, is very needy with love, this really like kind of solidifies it, uh, even though we've seen pieces of it throughout the season, um, I think shows us that Forty is essentially the, plays the role that Peach did in the first season, where she was the emotionally needy friend that always got in between Beck and Joe and, and Forty takes on that role here and we'll see him continue to get in between Joe and Love later on in the season. Um, but I, I think that it is interesting to have this this role be taken on by a sibling, particularly a twin, because I think it raises the stakes, right? Where in season one, even as audience members, we could say like, well, who is Peach to Beck, right? Like when you, some people might say like, unequivocally they would choose their romantic partner over their friends 
because of how they structure the relationships in their life. Um, but I think a lot of people would maybe struggle with, well, do you put your romantic partner over family, particularly siblings, you know, like immediate family and a twin and, you know, someone that, that you've just met. Um, so I think it, it raises the stakes for the audience in season two to have Forty, her twin brother, play the role of Peach of kind of like getting in between the relationship and Forty will continue to do things throughout the season that, um really kind of get in between them. So I, I think personally, it's very interesting that they raised the stakes this way um, and, and made him her twin too. Cause it's like, that's just even more <laughs> of a connection. Like, and I, I've never been romantically involved with anyone who was a twin and I don't have a twin. So I don't know, but I would say that kind of in the cultural zeitgeist, we think of like twins as being very close. Um, and so I, again, for the audience, I think it escalates the, the stakes of, you know, will Joe be able to kind of win her over? Um, because I think, even though we know that what Joe does is wrong, um, the show kind of sets it up for that us as the audience is kind of rooting for him to get together with love. And especially because as he moves into season two, Joe tells the audience more and more often that he wants to stop killing people. He wants to stop doing what he's done in the past. So I think there's a, there is a pull to kind of root for him. Um, and I'll, I'll get into more why uh, maybe Joe and Love are a good match um, later. I also wanted to mention that the behavior that we see in this episode where Joe is installing spyware onto Ellie's phone is still stalking. Um, and like we mentioned in the last episode, stalking typically occurs from people who know the stalking victim. And uh, Joe does know Ellie is growing close to her. And as he becomes closer to her, he engages in more stalking. Um, and again, just to reiterate what we talked about in the first episode and kind of the statistics about stalking, um, you know, this type of violation of somebody's privacy, this violation of their devices, um, and, you know, as the world becomes more reliant on technology, stalking is increasingly becoming more dependent or, or able to infiltrate their technology as well. It is, is, it doesn't matter what the intent is from the person doing the stalking. If it causes fear for the victim, um, then then it is then the intent is is useless, right? Um, and that and later on we'll see that Ellie does figure out that he's put this device on her phone, the software on her phone, and she feels very violated, and I think rightfully so. Um, and there's a difference between wanting to protect a child and, and being very honest with them about the dangers of the world um, and kind of going behind their back and behind the backs of, of the people in their family to, you know, obsess over them. And, and you know, Joe is not related to her. Joe is just somebody who lives in their apartment complex. And although he has a sort of friendship with her or a relationship with her, um, it really isn't his his role to, it isn't his job to kind of step into these these types of behaviors. So, just, you know, again, to reiterate, and I think, you know, throughout the show, it is important to kind of remember as an audience member or as a listener that, you know, stalking, <laughs> regardless of the intention, is is inappropriate behavior, right? And anything, it, it, it's done without the consent of the victim. Um, okay, so that's this third episode, rolling into fourth episode. Joe and Love continue their relationship. They're now, you know, more officially dating. Um, he starts to dig deeper into Henderson and is able to uncover evidence that Henderson does drug women. And there's like a secret room in his basement where Joe finds Polaroid photographs of women who are clearly unconscious and in compromising, sexually compromising positions that, that Henderson has taken. Um, and so this is kind of like 
the last piece of evidence that that Joe needed to kind of solidify that you know what he what he thinks about or what he's been told about Henderson is true. Um, Ellie does go over to Henderson's house at his request, and Joe follows her. Um, Joe is like inside Henderson's house while Ellie is there, and he sees that Henderson has slipped drugs into Ellie's drink. Again, further confirming what, what we've been told about Henderson. Um, so Joe slips the same drugs into Henderson's drink at the same time so that Ellie is passed out while while Henderson is passed out as well. Joe takes Henderson down into the scary basement and tries to get Henderson to confess to his crimes. Um, again, trying to Joe is trying to say like he doesn't want to kill Henderson like he would normally, but he wants him to confess his crimes so that Joe has evidence against Henderson to kind of drive Henderson out of the town. Um, but he does an oopsie um, and accidentally kills Henderson and so has to dispose of his body. And then, you know, of course, this then creates... Uh, an issue, and I think this is why having this place in Los Angeles is very interesting because Henderson has a bit of a reputation and is in this place where celebrities are, and a you know celebrity just going missing is a lot different than just um, like a rich boy in New York, like what happened with Benji. So I think this is kind of similar to Joe's murder of Benji in the first season, uh, but is contrasted with people actually notice that Henderson is gone, and so Joe has to come up with a way to address that in a very public setting because he is in this new context. He's not in New York anymore. He's in Los Angeles. Um, also in this episode, Joe finally lets go Will. Let's go of Will as Will has promised him that he'll leave the country and not tell anyone about Joe. And Candace arrives in episode four and we see that she is dating 40. So we understand from the audience that she specifically sought out 40 <laughs> to get closer to Joe. Um, but we uh, and and I think it's revealed that Candace figures out that he's in LA because a video of Forty's meltdown is posted and Joe uh, is posted on the internet and Joe is seen in the seen trying to comfort Forty. So Candace now knows he's in LA and he's you know at least around this guy in the video. So she goes after Forty. So lovely cliffhanger for the fourth episode. Rolling into the next episode, Joe accompanies Love to a treat that, a retreat that her parents are hosting for the anniversary, and he really gets to see kind of the extent of the wealth that her parents have. Um, Forty brings Candace to the retreat as well, so it's like both siblings bring their partners. Um, We find out more about Candace's journey after Joe attempted to kill her and um, how she wasn't believed. No one believed her that her boyfriend or her ex-boyfriend had tried to kill her, and um, she's she's really not believed by law enforcement every step of the way, and so we see why she um, has decided that she needs to take the situation into her own hands. we also learn from Love that Forty was sexually abused by a babysitter when he was 12 years old. Um, again, kind of paralleling with what was happening with Henderson and that uh, Forty, although a child at the time, wasn't able, didn't recognize that what was happening to him was abusive, um, but it's kind of understood that this really horrible thing happened to Forty and, and that kind of explains why he has so many difficulties now, especially with substances, because he has this trauma in his background. Um, and at this retreat, Candace and Joe have a confrontation and uh, she tells Joe that she has convinced Forty to turn Beck's book into a movie. So if you'll remember from season one, um, at the end, Joe publishes Beck's unwritten manuscript, which is essentially he's rewritten to be about her murder and is supposed to be framing Dr. Nikki, her old therapist. So uh, Candace is posing as like a film producer and 
Forty is, is saying that he wants to be a screenwriter, so she's saying she's kind of pushing him to adapt the story so that he'll dive more into Beck's story. Um, you know, and with this episode, this is, you know, one of the first times that we get to spend a lot more time with Candace, and we see that Candace is kind of shown to be as obsessed with taking down Joe as he is with the women that he covets. But again, Candace's obsession is fueled by this, like, this search for justice, right? Of, like, no one believed her, no one took her seriously, um, you know, no one could believe that she was buried half dead, half alive, and, and you know, crawled her way out, and that all these horrible things happened to her, um, and, and this is what, what her obsession is fueled by, and she's so single-minded because, one, she doesn't want him to get away with what he's done, and two, she doesn't want him to do any more harm to any women in the, in the same way that he, he did to her. And the show does kind of show us that, you know, again, although Candace's obsession maybe comes from this different place of intent, intent, it is still very damaging to her psyche, and she's seen to be really struggling and to be a little bit unraveling a little bit, and she is truly terrified of Joe. And, and when they have this confrontation, she, like, pulls a, a weapon on him and is, like, she seemed to be very visibly terrified of him. And again, I think bringing Candace back really helps to illustrate that what Joe does is not loving. It is not romantic. Um, I think it's, it, the Candace kind of serves to show the audience of like, these are the consequences of the type of behaviors that, that Joe engages in and that Candace is not okay. And even though she is doing the noble thing of trying to protect other women, um, she has taken a very big hit to her own well-being and her mental health, and she's clearly very traumatized. So I think that it is a really good idea to have Candace's character come back to really show us that, you know, the, the way that Joe treats women has long-lasting consequences, and we just haven't seen those consequences before because he usually kills the woman um, that he's stalking or, or obsessed with. Um, okay, so rolling into sixth episode, we attend uh, Henderson's funeral um, because Joe killed him. <laughs> uh, we also learn, this is kind of a big de death episode, so we also learn that Love was married before and that her first husband passed away from cancer very shortly after they married. And we do kind of get to see more flashbacks uh, about that relationship. Candace and Joe go back and forth breaking into each other's homes. Um, and when Candace breaks into Joe's apartment, Love is there and she confronts Candace to be like, what are you doing in Joe's apartment? And Candace tells her everything about Joe, like shows her pictures, you know, all this evidence of like, this is what Joe did to me. And Love breaks up with Joe after finding out that information. And after the breakup, um, Joe has an interaction with Delilah, his landlord, where she tells him that no one is willing to publish a story about Henderson's assaults even after his death, um, and he has sex with her. So, again, paralleling what happened in season one, where um, the relationship, Joe, like, gets into the relationship with the woman that he's been coveting, it seems to be going really well, and then something happens and they break up and he connects with a different woman. Woman um, In this season, it's like immediately, it's like literally right after he uh, hooks up with Delilah, and um, he appears to be able to move on, and we'll see him for a few more episodes be kind of doing this dance around with Delilah, um, but he it's just like he's appearing to be able to move on, but he's not. And I think that this really also highlights that Joe is not capable of being alone with himself, right? Like, even if he's not in a relationship, he's usually moved on to the next person that he's stalking, and there's never any time where it's just Joe. <laughs> um, and even for, I think, for people, no matter how, where they fall on the, the spectrum of, like, mental health, um, it, it, 
it's important to have time where you're alone. You're able to be alone. You don't have to constantly be in a relationship. It doesn't have to be for a long time, right? Like maybe a few months or whatever, but you know, Joe has demonstrated that he's unable to do that. And I think we can glean from his behavior in season one and season two that even before meeting Beck or meeting Candace, he was probably doing the same thing where he's just never really able to be on his own. Um, as we move into the seventh episode, things really start to escalate. Um, Love has also started dating someone else. It's the best friend of her deceased husband, which is, you know, there's a lot there. Um, so Joe is stalking her new boyfriend, um, but also still seeing a Delilah. In fact, he gets arrested for public intoxication and public sex with Delilah. Uh, he's put in jail, but Forty comes to bail him out. And we see that even though Love and Joe are not dating anymore, Joe and Forty still have this kind of friendship. Um, Delilah is then tipped off by her off-and-on boyfriend, who is a cop in Los Angeles. He uh, he tips her off that Joe might have had something to do with Henderson's death, because I don't don't exactly recall what the evidence was, but there's some connection um, between Joe and Henderson's death. And so this officer lets Delilah know, because it's kind of shown that he feeds her information to help her with her her reporting. Um, So she breaks into his apartment, finds the keys to Joe's storage unit, goes into it and finds the cage because it's still there. Even though Will is no longer in the cage, he's been let go, um, the cage is still there. Joe sees that she's broken in because he has cameras set up, so he runs to the storage unit to uh, kind of confront her and he locks her in the cage and promises her that he will let her out once he's able to escape town. He has to wrap up some loose ends, but then he'll leave and release her. So he puts her in uh, these handcuffs that have like a time release and basically tells her like when the the lock goes off, then she'll be able to to get out. Rolling into the next episode, Joe is attempting to like leave town and wrap up all these things. He wants to say goodbye to love. As he's trying to wrap up his loose ends, Forty has him fake kidnapped and locks the two of them in a hotel room to finish the script for the adaptation of Beck's book. And Ellie is also with them as she wants to become a screenwriter, and so she's helping Forty with this plan. Um, while he is, while Joe is like locked up in the hotel room with Forty, because Forty basically has these like mob guys posted at the door so Joe can't leave. Um, while they're in there, Forty doses Joe with LSD, saying that it'll help with the creative process, um, but it doesn't, and it's just that Joe starts hallucinating and loses track of time. Just like in season one, where he hits his head and hallucinates and has trouble, this is this is this, the, the parallel, and this season is the, the LSD scene. Um, as he's tripping, he reconciles with love and Forty finishes a script. In the process of working through the script, he realizes that Dr. Nikki could not have killed Beck and that her ex-boyfriend, which is Joe, <laughs> um, would have been the one to do it. And then Joe realizes that he left Delilah in the cage with the handcuff timer because he was um, under the influence and wasn't able to get there. And so he wasn't able to get out of town, so he goes to the storage container and finds Delilah murdered um, in the cage. So rolling right into the next episode, he attempts to retrace his steps to see if he was the one who killed Delilah while he was hallucinating. 
he uh, learns that Forty did drop him off at the storage facility, and then he immediately video called Candace, who sees Joe in the background of the call. She rushes over to the storage facility, finds Joe and the cage, and locks him in the cage. Uh, she then calls Love to see to come see what Joe has done, um, but Love murders Candace and tells Joe how much she loves him. So. Uh, Joe is locked in this cage with uh, where Delilah was murdered, and uh, he, you know, he he thinks that all of this is about to fall apart. Like Love is going to see what he has done because he is at this point is still convinced that he is the one who killed Delilah, um, and he's convinced like this is the end. Like Love is going to see what he's done that he's this bad person, um, but we see <laughs> that Love is almost on the same page as Joe and she murders Candace uh, for exposing this um, exposing this part of Joe. Um, I personally thought that this was one of the best reveals in a show that I had seen in a long time. My first thought was like, oh my gosh, like love is actually someone just as screwed up as Joe. Like they are the perfect match, even though they're like both incredibly toxic, bad people for doing all this murder. They are the same and they would kill for the person that they love. Um, so that, <laughs> like I said, these last few episodes really, really escalate. Um, so moving in to the next one, we see that most of the plot lines get wrapped up. Uh, we learn that Love is actually a lot more similar to Joe, and that had um, learned a lot about him, had basically stalked him in the same way that she he was stalking her, and learned what he wanted in a woman, and was like presenting that to him to ensure that he would fall in love with her. Um, she also reveals that she was the one who killed Delilah, because she had found the storage facility on her own when Delilah was still in the cage and to protect Joe, she killed Delilah. Uh, and that in childhood, the babysitter who was molesting her brother, Del uh, Love killed that babysitter as well, but they framed her brother to take the fall. Um, Joe becomes enraged at this information. He is like his his opinion of love is sullied and he thinks that she's a horrible person and he goes to kill her but at the last second she reveals that she is pregnant with his child. And so again, this is a great example of how lo lo uh, Joe has this like line and love killing people for him has crossed his line. He only wants to love a woman or be with a woman who is perfect and above the like dirty or bad things that he has done. So while he will rationalize the behavior that he does and the murders that he has done, uh, when someone else does it, it's especially when another woman does it, it's like unacceptable to him. And although love is demonstrating that she is willing to do whatever it takes to be with him at the same way that he's willing to do whatever it takes to be with her, he just like cannot handle it, does not fit into his pattern. Um, and we see that he was like willing to kill her because again, she's crossed the line. She's now a bad, a bad woman, not worthy of protection. Um, and then we, we see um, that he does decide that he will stay with love because he, he is going back and forth. He decides to stay with her. He will marry her and raise their baby. 
Um, as this is happening, Forty has put together the truth about Beck and goes to confront Joe to save his sister because he is worried that Joe will kill his sister, which, you know, honestly, logical, <laughs> understandable. Um, he, while confronting Joe, he pulls out a gun and is holding it on Joe, but at this same instance, uh, Delilah's boyfriend, who is a cop, <laughs> enters the scene and sees Forty attempting to shoot Joe, so he shoots and kills Forty. Um, conveniently, because now Forty is dead, Love uses her family money to kind of set up Forty as the fall guy for Henderson and Candace's deaths. Um, so she and Joe are scot-free, and they move to the suburbs, and the last line of the episode we see is Joe becoming fixated on a female neighbor he can see through the fence of their new home and showing that he is going to be right back to his old ways soon. So that is the summary of season two of You. Um, I'm going to go into some more of the themes and analyses that I wanted to highlight. Um, as I mentioned before with the Will plotline, um, the diagnosis of bipolar disorder comes up. Now it's not clear which type of bipolar that Will is diagnosed with. So just just to be clear, there are two types. There's bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 disorder. Um, depending on what would be the severity of the manic symptoms, and I'm going to go into what those are in a minute, um, determines the, the level if you're at a 1 or 2. Um, and it's it's not really clear. Like, you know, we're not really... <laughs> We're not given a lot of information about Will. All we find out is that he takes mood stabilizers, what he you know he calls his like medication for bipolar disorder, to kind of return to his previous level of functioning. Um, and so it it seems that he's having a manic episode or manic symptoms, um, and that the medication is able to stabilize those. Um, and he he becomes like so paranoid that he won't eat anything that's put in front of him and so Joe has to or like he becomes so paranoid he won't take the medication so that Joe has to like um basically sneak it into his food um and and because Will is shown to have this um mental health issue I thought it'd be interesting to look at what are some of the differences between um how bipolar disorder may present in men versus women um because personally a lot of the the portrayals of bipolar disorder that I'm familiar with in culture are with women like for example in Homeland or Lady Dynamite the female characters in those series um, have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and it's presented in a, um, a different way than I think it is presented with Will and so I I was curious to see if there's anything to that or if this was just like the writers maybe not really understanding <laughs> the disorder um, but interestingly enough I found this article from 2000 um, by Alt Schuler and team at all, and they looked at um, brain scans, neuroimaging of men who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, men who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, and men without either disorder. Um, and they found a lot of stuff about men with schizophrenia, which isn't super relevant right here, but I have sourced this article on my sources page, so if you're interested in looking at their other findings, um, I, I recommend checking it out. Um, but they did find that the men who were diagnosed with bipolar disorder um, tended to have significantly larger amygdala than the other two groups. So 
What is the amygdala? <laughs> I'm just throwing out brain terms here. Um, the amygdala is a, a portion of the brain that is, in, that is involved in a lot of stuff, but uh, is involved in kind of our fear system and how our um, brain and body react to perceived threats. Um, and it's also involved in parts of motor activity, um, so like how we coordinate and decide how to move our body. Um, the amygdala is involved in that, often with unconscious movement. So if you've ever um, put your hand on like a hot pan and your hand like pulls back from the pan before you've even like consciously acknowledged that the pan is hot and hurting you, your amygdala is part of that like reaction. So that's that's how it plays a role in motor activity and of course all types of fear stuff like the way we react to fear, the way we that we perceive things to be a threat or to be scary, the amygdala plays a role in that. Um, so according to Al Schuler and team, the enlargement of the amygdala may be responsible for increased activity in motion and greater levels of fear or how it may present in bipolar disorder as paranoia, which I think we see with Will, we see him as being kind of like, he's fidgety, he's restless, he's moving around a lot, and he's he's really paranoid. And so whether that's intentionally or not, I thought it was so interesting that the way that Will it portrays this diagnosis is kind of consistent with what has been found in the literature, um, albeit only in this not only in this study, but this is the study that I read. Um, and it does seem that there is some evidence for this occurring more specifically in men who have bi a diagnosis of bipolar disorder versus those, those other diagnoses. Um, and I, as I go through the symptoms of a manic episode or mania, you'll see why like the increased activity and motor activity um, how the amygdala probably plays a role in that. Um, so you know, great segue, me, set it up. <laughs> what is bipolar d disorder and how is it different than depression, which is um, also a mood disorder? So bipolar disorder has a depressive element to it. You may be more familiar with it being called something like manic depression. That's kind of what it was referred to back in the day. And some people may have, who, if you're in your 30s or 40s, you may have received a diagnosis of manic depression. Uh, versus bipolar disorder. And that's because an element of this disorder is that the person has had at least one depressive episode that lasted for two weeks in their lifetime, and at least one manic or hypomanic episode that lasted between four to seven days in their lifetime. So hypothetically, we could have somebody who's only had one depressive episode and one manic episode, and they would meet criteria for bipolar disorder. That's typically not what happens. Most likely you'll see people who experience um, several of these episodes. They may experience more frequent depressive episodes with infrequent manic or hypomanic episodes, but the presence of both is what qualifies for um, the diagnosis. So what is mania? <laughs> How do we understand that somebody is in a manic episode? So we need it to be... Um, a, a certain period of time. So for, for it to be a fully manic episode, it's going to need to be a week. For a hypomanic episode, it can be like four days. Um, but within this period of time, we need to have multiple things happening. So one of those things is that um, the person has a like increased energy or activity, right? So, and I'm not just talking about like those days where like you actually got eight hours of sleep and you <laughs> you feel good, but this is like really, really high energy. Like 
you feel like you're able to do like a thousand projects, maybe you start a thousand projects, like you're really, really, really energized and engaging in a lot of activities at once. And that may even um, present as like actual disturbances, like motor activity, right? Like being really fidgety, like we saw with Lil. Um, and having a mood disturbance, most likely um, being more uh, frustrated, more likely to be irritated with this like mood disturbance that's different than, than depression. So with those two aspects, we want to see a, a clump of other symptoms as well. So these symptoms can include um, an inflated sense of self-esteem, um, a decreased need for sleep. So f- not just sleeping less, like o- maybe sleeping only three or four hours a night, but not feeling tired when they wake up, right? So if you, you sleep for three or four hours and then you wake up and you're, you feel fine, like you just slept eight hours. Um, more talkative than normal or a pressure to keep talking. You may hear this referred to as like pressured speech. So like just words tumbling out, mouth can't keep up with kind of like the rate with which the brain is throwing thoughts out. Um, flight of ideas or an experience of your thoughts racing. So it's like really hard to slow down or focus in on one thought at a time. Um, high distractibility, um, increase in what we call goal-directive activity. So goal-directive activity is like um, I'm doing these activities to accomplish something, right? So, um, you know, maybe it's your projects you're starting at school or at work, um, maybe initiating a lot of social activity, like social gatherings. Um, those are goal-directed. And then non-goal-directed would be like the restlessness, like I mentioned before. And then the last symptom is excessive involvement in activities that have a high potential for painful consequences. So this can include things like um, spending money that one doesn't have, gambling, uh, engaging in like risky sexual behavior, um, and this one can be tough because, you know, pe- people, there there's a wide spectrum of what is like healthy um, sexual activity. And so maybe for one person, what isn't healthy um, is healthy for somebody else. But, but risky sexual behavior could be things like having unprotected sex with somebody that you don't know um, their, like their status. Like, like if you could be at risk for something like um, a sexually transmitted illness um, or maybe engaging in sex with multiple partners that in, in a situation where you wouldn't uh, feel as safe if you were not in the middle of an episode or maybe like engaging in sexual activity while under the influence of, of a substance um, where you don't have as much control. So th- those are kind of the things that uh, we would look for as red flags. But again, it, it I don't want anyone to feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I have this many sexual partners. Does that mean I'm manic? No, it's not. <laughs> again, it, it's like, it really is like very relative to the person's own experience. And for people experiencing a manic episode, it's like markedly different from how they are normally not normally, but how they would behave when they're not within the episode. So a big portion of how we diagnose the difference is like, what were you like? What are you like during this week when you're having this like increased energy and mood disturbance versus how you are three or four weeks before, or, you know, several months before, um, kind of setting this baseline. So, uh, you know, again, I bring this all up 
not because I want anyone to feel like they have to diagnose themselves. And I, like I've said before, I try not to engage in diagnosing, but this character kind of presented us with this diagnosis. So I figured it'd be a good opportunity to talk about it more. Um, and I highly encourage you that if you feel like you've experienced these things, you've experienced a cluster of these symptoms at the same time, specifically over several days, please seek out a mental health professional and, and get a really good assessment, um, you know, and, and do your best to communicate what you've been experiencing because that mental health professional can really help you figure out if this is the right label for you, um, if this if this is the diagnosis that fits for you, um, and they will be able to really work with you well to figure out if, if this is um, something to inform your treatment. Um, Again, that I, I wouldn't say that this depiction of this disorder is the best, um, and I probably will be doing an episode on definitely Lady Dynamite in the future, just so we can talk more about this disorder, and specifically the differences between mania and hypomania. Um, but, you know, I did want to say, kind of throw it out there of like, um, maybe what the show <laughs> was trying to communicate. Um, and because this show, again, deals with so many psychological and like, mental health concepts, when they give us like an identifiable diagnosis, I think it is really important to kind of dive into it. And I did want to cr- get it, give them credit for displaying uh, uh, characteristics in Will that actually may be consistent with the way that bipolar disorder is impacted by neurological um structures in particularly in male brains so I'll give I'll give them the props there but there 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 is a lot more that they could do here to kind of explain what's going on um and I will also say that it's very unlikely that Will being snuck his medication for a couple days would have that great of an effect typically um a lot of psychiatric medicines especially depending on which kind they are take more time, usually at least over a month for you to really see the effects, um, especially if they are taken in pill form. So, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm, you know, I'm not, I can't go into like what the different types are, but as a mental health professional in training who, you know, works closely with psychiatrists and works with people who are taking psychiatric medications, I can assure you that it does not work like a magic bullet pill (laughs) and just grinding up an SSRI or whatever and slipping it into someone's water bottle is not going to have the kind of effect that it has in the show. Um, But again, if this is something that you feel like is impacting you, I really do encourage you to seek out um, some mental health treatment. And again, there's always resources linked in the show notes of how to reach out to mental health professionals or to at least get connected with somebody in your local community. Um, My next area of, I think, analysis or themes that I think are really important in this season is this idea of kind of like doing enough good deeds to outweigh one's bad deeds. Um, And this really boils down to me to, I think, what is kind of Joe's very basic concept of morality. He's very moralistic and legalistic, right? Where it's like, he basically thinks that if he does enough good things, right? Like if he protects the people in his life, if he does, like gives everything to the women in his life, especially in this season, if he protects Ellie, you know, he protects, if he's able to protect people that he's not in a romantic relationship with, right? Like Ellie and Delilah and Will, um, then that means he's a good person, he's done enough good things that it outweighs the bad things that he's had to do, and that even those bad things are good because they serve 
not totally good, but are not wholly bad because they serve his mission to um, protect the people in his life. So as I was thinking about this, I was like, okay, what's <laughs> like what's the deal with with Joe's morality? And it got me thinking about um, this theory called Kohlberg's theory of moral development, which is one of my favorite theories. Um, and I'm just going to do like a brief kind of overview of it. I would like to dive into this more in another episode, a future episode. Um, but basically, this breaks down to an idea of that in childhood, um, we develop a sense of how how we come to know that things are right or wrong. Um, and that the hope is that by the time, well, Kohlberg said that by the time you hit 11, but I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how accurate that is anymore, um, but the t- by the time you hit 11, you should be able to move into um, a more, what he calls post-conventional stage of, of moral development, to be able to kind of reason through these moral situations, um, but that most people actually don't make it to post-conventional and are stuck in conventional morality, which is where I would see Joe. So conventional morality has two steps within it, according to this model. Um, the first step is what is called like good boy good girl morality and again this is supposed to be for like school-age children like 7 to 11 years old um and this type of morality is this idea that um you need to act in ways that avoid disapproval and gain approval from others so your idea of what is right or wrong is based on how other people see you not necessarily like an external uh like rigid set of rules, right? It's like, it's really based on how people will see you. And then the second step is um, conforming to rules to avoid being, getting in trouble with authority. So I think that, that Joe probably straddles (laughs) these two steps. I think he really is more heavily in the first step, which is he does what he needs to do to avoid disapproval. um, And that you know, he, he knows that he if he kills somebody, that, that nobody will like that, right? So he knows that he has to hide that. We know this because of the way he reacts when he thinks love is about to find out that he is a bad person, that he's done these crimes, right? He, he, he loses it because it's like, oh, it's over. She's not going to think I'm a good person. Like, I've lost this woman that I just reconnected with, right? Especially given that context of, like, they just rekindled their relationship. So he really is stuck in this idea of, like, what he does, it has to be presented um, as good to other people. And that he's not going to, like, think about um, what the bad things that he's done if, if other people won't know about them, right? And I know I'm, I'm, I'm being real simplistic about this theory <laughs> and, and about, like, this, this moral development, but I think this is interesting and, like, this is how that people develop, like, their worldview and develop, like, how they how people develop an ethic and a morality about how they will treat others and how they expect to be treated um, by the people around them. So Joe is really stuck in this. I think he also sometimes steps up or incorporates some of these behaviors about not wanting to be censured by authorities. And we see this a lot more in season two where he's in LA and there's a lot more uh, surveillance, right? We, we really see in season one that in New York, he's able to get away with a lot. People don't really notice him. He really blends in. Um, but in Los Angeles, especially in this context of like very stereotypical LA, everybody's always on their phones. Everybody's always posting videos and photos of each other online. Um, it's harder to blend into the background. And so Joe does have to do 
certain activities or certain behaviors to conform to standards that will not get him in trouble with authorities. Um, I think we can all agree that Joe is in the good boy, good girl morality stage, and he is really fueled by how others view his behavior, and specifically how the like object of his obsession views his behavior. I think that's his like ultimate um, conforming to. So again, I'll get into more of this theory in a later uh, later on in the year, maybe. Um, but it is really interesting, and again, I will link to. Um, some sources about it so you can read more about it on your own if you're not familiar but I do I do really think that this theory is very interesting even if I don't think the age uh age limits or whatever Kohlberg put on them are uh very relevant anymore but last point I want to make about season two is um this idea of Joe and Love being so similar (laughs) Um, especially after we realize at the end of the season that Love is willing to engage in the same, almost exactly same type of behavior as Joe is, right? Like murdering people to protect a a loved one. Um, Joe engages in something that, uh, from a psychodynamic tradition, we would call splitting. This is a defense mechanism that was outlined by, again, in the psychodynamic tradition. Um, And splitting is basically where we see people as either all good or all bad, right? So, for example, with Joe and Love, right? When Joe first meets Love, she is all good. All he focuses on are the good things about her, that she is beautiful, that she's funny, she's a talented chef. Um, All of these things he sees as, he sees her good traits. When Joe has to confront what he may consider a negative trait about Love, let's say, her odd relationship with her brother. Throughout this show, we see that Joe struggles with how close Joe and uh, Love and Forty are. Joe has to come to a choice of, what do you do to assimilate this fact about Love? There's something about Love that he doesn't like. So how does he, how does it factor into this all-good picture he has of her? And so in splitting, you can do two things. So you can either ignore (laughs) the negative trait and just um, pretend that the person doesn't have that trait. Maybe pretend 40 doesn't exist. Um, Pretend that you don't see what's going on or you kind of remove yourself from interactions where love and 40 are together. It's not possible for Joe, right? Because 40 and love are very close and 40 is always at the grocery store, always around. So Joe can incorporate this trait as part of a a positive, right? So seeing Love and Forty's relationship as a sign that Love really cares about her family, that Love is willing to protect the vulnerable, because um, Forty is pretty vulnerable, right? He he has some, he obviously has had some trauma in his life. He's struggling with substance use issues, all of this stuff. So you you can incorporate it into a good thing. When someone is splitting, there comes a point where they're may be too many negative traits to be reframed as positives. So all of a sudden we swing to the other side. Now the other person is all bad. Love isn't funny, she's sarcastic and mean. Love isn't pretty, she's stuck up about her appearance, right? Um, You know, her relationship with her brother is too close and gets in the way of other relationships, right? All of a sudden it swings the other way. For Joe, the, the... 
the way that he swings to the negative part of splitting is when the, the woman he is obsessed with has made too many mistakes, right? Crossed over. And with love, that, that line comes when she kills uh, Candace, or reveals that she kills Candace and Delilah. So where does this splitting come from? Well, I believe that it comes from Joe's experiences with his mother. So in the flashbacks, we see that um, Joe spends most of his time with his mother, and the only times he spends with his father, his father is, is very abusive, very physically abusive with Joe as well. Um, there is a scene where Joe's mother shows him a gun that she has purchased, and while holding the gun, tells him that she is going to kill his father one day. So, in a different flashback, um, we see that Joe gets the gun and kills his father to protect his mother, um, but she gets mad at Joe and is in kind of disbelief about what he has done. Um, she then abandons Joe on a boardwalk and runs off with another man. So this is the first time in Joe's life where a good woman turned bad, right? She was good, needed to be protected. You know, she was his mother. And I think because she was his mother, she probably not got away with, right? But like made made more mistakes than he would um allow for with with any other women in his life right like she because she's the first one um but she becomes a bad woman when she abandons him and is upset with him for doing what he thought she wanted him to do um and he learns that a bad woman doesn't appreciate to doesn't appreciate being protected by him so a bad woman doesn't need to be protected right so in that moment his mother shifts from good woman to bad woman and as a bad woman and again, this is from Joe's perspective, right? I'm not saying that this is like a value judgment on his mother's character, but from Joe's perspective, she becomes a bad woman and she's upset at him for protecting her. So therefore he learns the bad women will not appreciate the lengths to which he will go to protect them. Um, however, Joe has never in his life experienced a woman who appreciates his protection because as we've seen with Candace and Beck, um, and I mean, even maybe to some extent love at the beginning when his behavior is revealed and it, and the woman, the women see him for who he is as a, as someone who stalks and murders and does violence, um, they don't appreciate it. They don't understand it. But at the end of season two, love acknowledges that she gets it. She appreciates the protection. She sees it as protection. She knows why he does what he does because she does the same thing and Joe cannot handle it because it's never happened before and what do you do with splitting then because all of a sudden you're looking at somebody who is doing what you do they have the same traits as you and for you you see them as good traits but when you externalize them there are bad traits and you acknowledge that people who do this kind of thing are bad people but this is somebody who is doing this for you for the same reasons. So you see how that like very quickly shorted out <laughs> like whatever defense mechanism or thing Joe had going on, right? So and and I've talked before about young, right? Unconscious, the collective unconscious and archetypes. Um, young also has this idea of light and shadow sides, and I think for Joe, love reflects his shadow side back to him, right? The shadow side is like the dark side. 
Jung would say that we all have dark sides and we all have to have a balance of them, um, but that Joe was probably relying most heavily on his dark side, his shadow side, particularly when doing his, you know, not so great behavior. But love is his shadow side externalized out of his body, and when he's looking at it, he can't rationalize away those actions in the same way that he does when he looks at them within his own context, right? It's hard, like, he's ready to kill love because she's a bad person because he can't rationalize her actions the way he does within himself. And so that's why I think that that twist of the show is so powerful is that you're seeing somebody confront their own shadow side. You're seeing someone confront the evil within them in a way that they can't run away from because Joe's literally trapped in a cage while this is happening. He's still in the cage in the storage facility while this confrontation is going on. And so he cannot hide from himself and has to reconcile with the reality of how ugly his actions look to those around him. And I think for a split second, we see that Joe realizes how Beck felt, how Candace felt, how these women felt when they saw what he was truly capable of because he's seeing it for the first time through love. However, going back to like Joe's moral, moralistic, legalistic way of viewing the world, because he's bound by this very rigid moral code that's based on what will get him of approval, he is morally bound to protect love and their child when she discloses her pregnancy. So I think that is why we see at the end that Joe does not um, go through with his intention to kill love when she tells him that she's pregnant with his child because there are rules you follow, right? And if you don't follow those rules, then people will think you are a bad boy. Um, And one of those rules is you don't kill a pregnant woman and you don't kill your child. and that, and we see that Joe is not capable of loving love. He's now shifted to the child, right? And of protecting the child. And so this leads us right into season three, which I'll discuss next week. But this setup is fantastic because, like I've mentioned, in season one and two, we've had these child stand-ins for Joe, right? Paco and Ellie have been a stand-in for himself kind of protecting himself in his own childhood and now that he is about to have a child with um, a woman a bad woman right just like his mother became a bad woman uh, this is obviously gonna set up a lot (laughs) for Joe to handle so we will talk about that all in the next episode Um, but I'm gonna end this here because I've been talking for way too long Um, but I really really love this show and I hope that the information that I'm bringing this week is very useful for you um very entertaining. And again, if you are experiencing any of the the issues that we talked about this in this episode, please reach out for help. Um, use the resources in the show notes. Um, use the resources around you. Um, and with that, I just want to say thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye! To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.